To the Battle Creek Tabernacle Sabbath worship service. I uh, just want to be here uh, to uh, share. I'm just here to share a few announcements with you. Um, today's a special Sabbath, not just because it's Sabbath, <laughs> but because we're also having communion. So it's a high Sabbath, and uh, we uh, hope that all of us can prepare our hearts before um, the communion service because, you know, we're not able to do the, the foot washing. But um, I trust that all of us are prepared to take part in that communion in whatever form you take part in it. I just want to share a few announcements. As I said, um, first of all, I want to let you know, if you do not know already, um, we here at the Tabernacle, we've had the opportunity to uh, take part in a food bank um, every Tuesday. Although we're not having one this Tuesday, but we are having one next Tuesday. Um, so if you know anybody who may be in, in need of some assistance with food or you, you yourself, uh, would like to be blessed in that way, uh, come on down from 1 to 3 um, next Tuesday. I, I forget what, what date that, that is, but not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday from 1 to 3. And just to ensure that you can get a box of food, uh, try to get there before 2, because sometimes after 2, um, it's all gone. So try to get there nice and early so you can make sure to get a, um, a box of food either for you or for somebody else. Also, um, every Thursday morning, uh, we have a united prayer service from 6 to 7 in the morning. Um, it's been a really blessed time, and it's a great day to start off our day. Uh, it's a great way to start off our day with prayer um, from 6 to 7. Um, an email is sent out from the church office uh, with the, um, the meeting ID. Um, you, will need a, you will need the app uh, Zoom. All you got to do is download that. And then with the information given in the email, the ID number, you can just um, type that in and then you can be able to join in that wonderful prayer um, meeting in the morning. Also, Hope Awakens, uh, the evangelistic meetings that we're taking part in, uh, together with hundreds of other churches around the world, um, will be continuing uh, throughout this week. Uh, so today's Sabbath, there are two messages um, for Hope Awakens, one at 2 p.m., and another one at 7 p.m. And throughout this week, uh, there will be messages on Tuesdays, on Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Friday, and then next Sabbath will be the finale of the Hope Awakens. So please keep praying for this effort. Uh, we have been able to meet new friends that are interested in learning more about God, and uh, we need the Holy Spirit to continue to work um, in the heart. So please continue to pray for this effort, continue to invite, continue to share. Um, it's very important that we take part inviting through sharing uh, through the social media platforms um, so that people can, can be benefited from that. Uh, may God bless you. We'll see you again next time. God bless. Bye-bye. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Glad you're all well. I'm here for a brief uh, analysis of something we've all been dealing with. It's called change. Um, 
Has the thought of changing for the better crossed your mind at all recently? With all the people involved in changes recently, have you wondered why when change occurs, some people flail and others sail? Why do some become better and others just plain bitter? How is that one person is frozen with fear and hopelessness while another sees and seizes the opportunity present in the change? The answer seems to lie in a person's response to change. And that's what I'd like to briefly outline. There are a few of the many uh, commonly accepted strategies that make it easier to weather the change in our lives. Number one is, accept the fact that change is always happening. It is surprising that so many people are taken off guard when change shows up in their lives. Those who resist and fight the changes that come can make themselves vulnerable to being swept away by those changes. Let's try to remember that change is a permanent fact of life and make the choice to roll with it by finding ways to adapt or adapt. Point number two is choose your mindset. Remember William James, some would call the father of American psychology? His claim to fame is his statement that the greatest discovery of his generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their attitudes of mind. That opened a lot of uh, territory for people to be more free. So your thoughts can make you either miserable or happy. In truth, your outlook will determine your outcome. Keeping that in mind will make all the difference in the world, life or death even. <clears throat> Point number three, remember to have faith. When you believe that there is a good God on your side, your faith can help you get through anything, even overwhelming change, especially overwhelming change. Author A.J. Cronin speaks, if we have faith, a door will open for us. Not the one that we would have thought of, but one that eventually and ultimately will prove good to us. Point number four. Take all these changes at a small step at a time. When change comes your way and it feels like too much at one time, it may, become, it may begin to feel drastic. This may be the time to initiate the process of downsizing its impact by cutting it down to a few small steps at a time. As the wise uh, ancient Eastern proverb says, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Just make that step in the right direction. In summary to this abbreviated list, I'm going to repeat what Williams James is well known for. The greatest discovery of his generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their attitudes of mind. 
And for you, my friends, I wish that your changes are tolerable, manageable, and bring you blessings. Thank you. In Proverbs, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, surrender to Him and He will make your path straight. Even when we don't understand, we can trust. There is no one who can guide our steps like God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that the things God has planned for us are more than our eyes have seen and more, more than our ears have heard. In fact, his plans are things that have never entered our minds. That's because we live with a very limited perspective. But he is the Alpha and Omega. He sees the beginning and the end, and he can be trusted with all of it.
2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes that our right, light, and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So let us fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is only temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. No matter what we go through, we can remember that God is holding us in his hands and he will work all things together for good in his time. call to worship comes from Psalms 34. Psalms 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. I love verse 3. It says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So I invite you to sing with us here. Uh, hymn number 340, Jesus Saves. Go ahead and sing from your home um, and let, let us exalt his name together. Hymn number 340. show you what is this lily a goldie a goldie or goldfinch now this bird um this bird it stays here during the winter but during the winter it's all brown and it's not very attractive but in springtime it becomes this beautiful yellow golden color and so that's so neat to see but the first bird um, that we see usually in springtime is a robin the robins, when we first see them, I usually start thinking, oh, spring is about here. The robins are here. And so it's always exciting to see the robins. Now, we like to go to a lake, a lake to walk around, and we like to look for this duck. What is this, Nathaniel? Uh, a wood duck. 
This is a wood duck, and we love to see the wood ducks that they come up. Now, a wood duck, like the robin, migrates up here to the north. So that means during the fall, they leave and go to warmer places, and then in the springtime, they come up back up here north. And so we love to see the wood duck. And something that's exciting about the wood duck is that they... Yeah, we see the wood duck at the bird sanctuary. And what's so neat about wood ducks is they actually nest in the trees. So most ducks and geese nest on the ground. Wood ducks nest in the trees. And so they're a duck that goes in the trees. And when their babies are born, they will jump from their nest all the way down to the ground or to the water and then go with their parents. Um, now, another bird I wanted to show you is this bird. This is a painted bunting. And you know what? They don't normally belong in Michigan. They live in Florida in the southern states, and they do migrate north, but almost never to Michigan. But I wanted to show you this because I saw on the news this week there was a painted bunting in Coloma, Michigan. And I was tempted to get in my car and go find it. But it's very unusual, but I wanted to show you this bird, a painted bunting. Now, the last bird I wanted to show you is this one. What is this, Nathaniel? An oreo. This is an oreo, and we're seeing them in our yards now, and they're so beautiful. The, the males are this beautiful, bright orange, and the females are also orange, just slightly um, lighter. But they're so beautiful, and they don't normally eat seeds like other birds. They'll eat um, grape jelly and nectar and oranges. And we have all three of those in our front yard to see um, the Orioles. So they're so beautiful. Now it's so interesting how birds know how to migrate. So they have, God has given them something called instinct, which tells them in the fall, okay, it's getting colder, you need to go down south. Um, and they also tells them in the springtime, oh, it's getting warmer, let's go up north. And it's something that it's hard to explain. It's just something that God has given them that tells them what to do. Now, sometimes I think it would be really nice to have instinct ourselves and just to be able to know precisely what the right thing to do is. Sometimes we get into situations where we don't always know what the right thing to do is and we might be concerned and worried about what to do. Well, God tells us what to do. God says in Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. So boys and girls, when we don't know what to do and we wish that somehow like a bird, we just instinct tells us, oh, do that, do that. Well, God has given us the ability to understand and to trust in him. And so if we're worried, we don't know what to do, we can look at these verses and ask ourselves, are we trusting in the Lord with all our hearts? Are we acknowledging him in all our ways? And if we are, we can trust him and know that he will reveal himself to us and tell us what to do and we'll claim the promise that he shall direct your paths. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the birds and all the things we can learn about them. Thank you how you guide the birds and you give them instinct to know what to do. And we thank you, Lord, that while we are not birds, you have made us humans with minds to reason and to understand and ultimately, Lord, to love you. And so may we trust in you with all our hearts. May we trust in your understanding and acknowledge you in all our ways. And thank you for guiding our paths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I'm so glad to be participating in worship with you this morning. I'd like to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13 for our scripture reading. That's John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the supper being ended, the devil having already put it in the, into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garment, his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them.
right, happy Sabbath once again, church. I want to share a story with you before we get into our sermon proper this morning. Imagine the scene with me, if you will. You've spent your whole life working for God and witnessing for Him. You've got a family and you've been the consummate witness to them of the love of God. At times, they seem to get it. Other times, not so much. You've given them example after example after example of what God is like. But now you know that your time is limited. You see, you've contracted a deadly strain of cancer and you have but a short time to live. You've told the kids, the doctor's prognosis, that you're going to die. But even now, they're having a meltdown over who is going to sit in the front seat on the way home from the park. You could tell them once again what it means to do the will of God, to be a humble, loving child of His, or or instead of telling them, you could show them what it means. Yes, you could give them an example that they would never forget. And the latter is just what Jesus did. Let's pray. Father in heaven, now as we turn to your holy word, we ask your spirit to come especially into our hearts and minds. Make the pages of your word come alive to our hearts. Give us clearness of understanding. Give us conviction of the spirit. And give us courage to follow what you tell us to do from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn with me to John chapter 13 this morning. And thank you, Aubrey, for reading that for us. We're going to be looking at verse 1. There are four Gospels in your Bible, four accounts of the life of Jesus, and three of them are quite similar. They are called synoptics. S-Y-N, meaning same, and optic, can you guess? Meaning vision. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. It's as if they see with the same eyes. Very different from them is the gospel of John. It's as if he saw with different eyes, and you would expect that because he was John the Beloved. He was in the inner circle. Indeed, he was the closest one of the inner circle. So we should expect something meaningful from John. Now, the context of John 13 is very important. This is the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life on earth. It was here that the destiny of earth's teeming multitudes hung in the balance. This, indeed, was Jesus' darkest hour, especially starting Thursday night, but it was also his finest hour. You know, I believe that's going to be true of the church in the last days of God's people. It will be the darkest hour, but it will be our finest hour as Christ lives his life out through us. The greatest possible sign that Jesus could give, the greatest possible love that he could show to a lost and dying world was to willingly suffer the curse of sin for them and die. And that is exactly what he did. If you think sometimes your life is like a roller coaster ride, just think about Jesus. 
While many were following him, thrilled and enamored with his teachings, many others were trying to kill him. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man that was blind from birth. And the Pharisees are livid. Later, Jesus would perform one of his most amazing miracles, most decisive miracles, as he would raise from the dead Lazarus and proclaim himself as the resurrection and the life. Of course, that would just further accentuate the plot of the Pharisees and the chief priests. You know, one of the reasons why it's important to spend quality time on the closing scenes of Jesus' life is because that will be the experience of the true believers in the last days, the days in which we live. If you remember, the wily Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jews, but not for the Jews only, for the scattered children of God around the world, and that was true. He also said it would be better for one man to die, speaking of Jesus, than for the whole nation to perish. To the Pharisees, the end justified the means, even if it meant the death of a righteous man. That is the principle of a democracy where the majority rule and individual rights are trampled. This nation, the United States, was set up as a republic and not a democracy. A republic with a constitution, with a bill of rights, with a declaration of independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, not even needing explanation that all men are created equal, that they also are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these, not just these, but including these, are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's a republic where those who govern are to receive their cues from the people they govern and also protect the rights of all individuals. Well, after raising Lazarus, the chief priests now had two problems, not one, and they decided to double down. Not only were they plotting to kill Jesus now in John chapter 12, but now they're plotting to kill Lazarus also. Now, all this leads up to the events recorded in John 13, where the Last Supper is recorded. This, by the way, fits perfect with it, perfectly with our series that's soon to come, That You May Believe, which we'll start next week on the Gospel of John. But this chapter 13, this is amazingly where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. Verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Or as the margin in the New American Standard says, he loved them to the uttermost, or he loved them eternally. What does eternal love look like? Well, we'll come back to that, but I want to note something else just here for a moment that's earlier in this verse. 
Because it says that Jesus knew that his hour had come. Previous to this, again and again, he would say, my hour has not yet come with full assurance. And now with just as much assurance, he says that his hour has come. More about this in our next sermon, but I at least want to say a little bit here. How did he know his hour had come? And what was he talking about? What is this hour? Well, Jesus knew from a prophecy in the Old Testament and from the Passover typology, which he was fulfilling, that this would be his last Passover feast on earth. Indeed, he would become the Passover for us. He would be hung on a cross at 9 a.m., the time of the morning sacrifice, and he would die at 3 p.m., the time of the evening sacrifice, on that fateful Good Friday, as we call it. When the triumphant cry rang from his lips, it is finished. That indeed was a love beyond degree. It says he loved his own who are in this world and he loved them to the end. Is telos in the Greek. This is speaking of the disciples, but not just them. I think by extension, it's speaking of us. And the Greek word, the root word for the Greek word love here is, you guessed it, that word agape. To the end means he loved them completely, perfectly, fully, utterly, to the max, to the end. Both, now get this, both in terms of capacity to love. What is God's capacity to love? Well, that's how much he loved them. He loved them both to the max, both in terms of capacity to love and eternity of time. All the grace, all the mercy, all the boundless blessings, all the lavish gifts that are poured out are poured out forever on those of us and all of us that are the product of this infinite divine love. And all that against the black backdrop of knowing us, knowing our selfishness, knowing our weakness, knowing our failure, knowing our cowardice, our doubt, and our denial. This is a love that is of divine origin. You can't work hard enough to make this up or to love like this. You just can't do it. It's got to come as a gift from God. It's not a romantic love as we know it. It's not sentimental. It isn't emotional that is as being a fickle love that goes up and down. It is fixed and eternal. And it provides eternal salvation and eternal blessing and eternal glory. It is a love that lasts as long as God lasts, which is forever. It is an active love that chases after the sinner till his dying day with arms outstretched. It is a faithful love to the very end. And we are to love him because he first loved us. Nothing can separate us from this love. Absolutely nothing. It is a sacrificial love that puts 
the needs of humanity above his own needs. You know, he gave that very meaningful illustration earlier in John chapter 12, where he said that his hour had come. In verse 24, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit or much grain. This, of course, speaking of his death for the sins of the world, but also the principle of life that he imparts in the believer. For he goes on to say that he who loves his life in this world will lose it. But he who hates his life or puts others first in this life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. Now, it is the very principle of unselfish, humble servanthood that Jesus goes on to teach then in chapter 13. That's the story, as I said, of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We, as a church, wash feet with the communion service And that's of divine origin here from John chapter 13. It's the ordinance of humility, we call it. And this is where we get it from. As the supper was about ready to be served, the disciples were already reclining. We're told that the heart of Jesus was already set on the betrayal of Jesus. And so they're ready to eat, but something very important hasn't taken place yet. This was a private meeting. Apparently there were no servants around to wash the disciples' feet and none of them would stoop to do it either. It was indeed a service that the Jews looked down on. In fact, if a Jewish man had Jewish and Gentile servants, as was often the case, they were not allowed by law to let the Jewish servant do the foot washing and had to fall on the Gentile by their ordinances. But now Jesus would give the lesson of all lessons, the lesson of humility. So he took off his outer garment, girded himself with a towel, poured water in a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Well, Peter, as he often was the spokesman for the disciples, said, look, something is wrong here. You will never wash my feet. Phrase here in the Greek, never uk me, is the strongest possible construction. It means it is not happening over my dead body, not in a million years, under no circumstances. There is no room for discussion here, Lord. Absolutely not, period. Jesus responds by saying to Peter, you know, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. Oh, that must have hit him right in the heart, right? It was as if Jesus was saying here to Peter, the only way for you to have a part with me or be my disciple is learn this lesson of humility and of trust in God himself and of self-sacrifice and of agape love. To this, 
Peter responds, well, if that's the case, why didn't you say that? If that's the case, I'm all in. If that's the case, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands, wash all of me, wash my head, all of it. Now, here is a deep spiritual truth that Jesus teaches at this time. Very important, and it's about righteousness by faith. He says this, he says, the one who has taken a bath, this is there in chapter 13, the one who has taken a bath or is cleansed needs only to have his feet washed, but is completely clean. Oh, very interesting. Completely clean, really? The disciples had just been arguing about who was the greatest, and Jesus says they are completely clean, except for one. In what way were they completely clean? Were they sinlessly perfect, needing no further sanctification? Hardly. When Jesus said they were completely clean, he meant that they were completely washed, completely justified by faith. They had accepted the perfect spotless robe of Christ's righteousness. And in that way, they were completely clean, although still growing in their faith walk with Jesus. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord and been born again, God looks at you through the lens of the perfect, spotless life of Jesus. Oh, sure, there's a sense in which that's true for the whole world, but here Jesus is speaking in the context of believers. It is as if he looks at you as perfect, while at the same time, he's making you perfect. He looks at you as if you are ready for heaven. Well, at the same time, he's getting you ready for heaven. He looks at you as if you are completely clean. At the same time, he's cleaning you up. That is really the deeper meaning attached to the foot washing service. So now here's the question. Do you want what Christ is offering? Do you want the Father to look at you personally through the crimson lens of the blood of Christ? Do you want that forgiveness and cleansing that Christ offers to all to be yours as a personal possession? Do you want to accept his perfect life and let him take your botched up, messed up attempts to make yourself righteous and put those under the blood? Will you say yes to the great exchange, the great truth that Christ became sin for you who knew no sin, that you might be made the righteousness of God in him? Because that is exactly, and we're talking about communion here, flesh and the emblem of the cup represents his death. Life poured out in death, that's what blood represents, the wages of sin, the second death, which he tasted for you. As we close, I want to share a second story about foot washing. It took place right there in the book of John just a little earlier. Do you remember it? The other foot washing, it was now not Jesus who was washing the disciples' feet, but it was Jesus who was getting his feet washed and in a very unusual and touching way. 
course, it was the wonderful deed of Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She was seemingly the only one who really understood what was happening. When at great personal sacrifice, 300 days wages, she anointed Jesus with very precious perfume. How they got that kind of money, we don't know. We can only surmise. But it represented tremendous sacrifice. Nothing on earth was too costly for her to give to her Lord. She knew that Jesus would be broken and spilled out as an offering for a lost race. Mary was anointing Jesus for his burial. Her heart was touched by his love and her emotions overflowed as she washed the feet of her Savior with her tears. And now seemingly making a mess of things. Oh, there she was. Now she's crying at this guy's feet, her Savior's feet. And so what does she do? She takes down her long flowing hair and wipes the tears off with her hair. But her appreciation must find expression. She couldn't keep it in. May we, like Mary, have that kind of love that must find expression. We must share it with others. May we, like Mary, have a full-hearted devotion to the one who is so fully devoted to us. So much so that he came all the way down, not just becoming a man, although that would have been a huge sacrifice, but becoming one who would die. And not just one who would die, but one who would die the death of the cross. He came all the way down. He was so fully devoted to you and I. So may we, like Mary, have a full-hearted devotion to him who has been so devoted to us and May we have faith in his unfailing faithfulness to us. Let's pray. Father, indeed, this love is something beyond degree, something beyond what we can fathom, both in extent, that is, as far as time and capacity. It's a love that is as long as your life is long. And it's as wide as your arms only can go. Oh Lord, there's no end to this love and it's this love that is drawing us today. It was right there in John also, chapter 12, where he said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. Father, today, if there are those in the listening ear of my voice that are being drawn, please, Lord, send your spirit to seal that decision on their hearts. And if those of you that are listening are being drawn, let Jesus pull you closer than ever before. You're going to need that. We're all going to need that, Lord, in these last days. 
Thank you again so much that, Jesus, you loved your own and you loved them to the end, to the ultimate, to the max. And may that love well up within us like it did with Mary. And may our hearts overflow with appreciation and service to thee. We thank you, Jesus, for that love and for your perfect, spotless righteousness, which ascends with every prayer as sweet incense. And it's in your name that we pray now. Amen.
Stop.